thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to tackle now the period surrounding the first century. What did the Christians of the first century believe? What were their outlook on life? What were the problems they faced? How did they understand the words of Christ? What were their expectations? And what was the geopolitical context in which they lived? Geopolitical means geography and politics together. All these elements play a very important role in understanding the purpose of the book of Revelation. Why was it written in the first place? What we're going to do tonight is focus specifically on those parts of the New Testament that deal with the end times. You might think of them as apocalyptic features. And I'm going to show you that these features are not reserved, are not found only in the book of Revelation, but they are actually spread through the entire New Testament. And the way we're going to approach that, and we'll see how far we can get tonight, is in four logically ordered steps. The first one is the announcing, the announcement of the end times by our Lord, his own words. So while Jesus was still on earth, he spoke about the end times. And we are going to now look at those passages which typically are difficult and confusing for many people. However, for you tonight, they should not be so because of all that we have covered so far, their sense should be relatively clear. Then we're going to look at the way that the Christian community in the text that appeared after the death and resurrection of our Lord viewed the last days or the end of the ages. The third part deal actually with the quickening. We move from the last days to the last hours. So there's a definite sense of urgency that emerges through Scripture. And then finally, we're going to look at the passages of the New Testament that speak about the new age. So we're going to go from the prophecies that Christ did to their actual realization. And all these texts are in the New Testament I'll touch briefly on some of them in the book of Revelation, but I will reserve most of it for later. Hopefully this will give you an added context through which you can read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation did not appear out of thin air. It was not a specialty of St. John. He was not the only one concerned with those issues. Those issues are actually the concern of um, most of the New Testament. So let's start with the announcements of the end times of our Lord. Those passages, when viewed outside of the covenant, when viewed outside of the four senses of Scripture, when viewed outside of the prophecies, the Psalms, the history of Israel, make no sense. 
not only they do not make sense, they can lead some to doubt the words of Christ. Here's, here's one example. St. Matthew, chapter 16, verse 31. Amen, I say to you, amen is a form of oath. That's an oath-taking. That means it's going to happen. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That's a pretty strong statement on the part of our Lord. There are some here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. When we view this verse outside of the covenantal context, outside of the history of Israel, outside of the prophecies, outside of the understanding of the coming into the kingdom, and what that means, what are you left with? You're left with a conundrum. You're left with, uh, with a paradox that caused a 19th century French priest by the name of Albert Loisy, who was a brilliant theologian, to not only, not only doubt scripture, but actually leave the priesthood, leave the church, and die an atheist. This was actually a very big crisis in the 19th century, both on the Protestant and the Catholic side. And today, those same arguments are, are uh, used with great success by Muslim apologists to demonstrate that scripture contradicts itself. So this is not a small little detail we're talking about here. Because if you read this literalistically, what do you understand? What did Jesus say will happen? He's going to come back, right? There are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. He's coming back. Well, where is he? It's been 2,000 years. Where is he? Now, that's not an isolated verse, as you will see. There are many more. In order to understand this verse, and others like it, we're going to study a passage in Scripture, which, as I said earlier, stumps many. And many priests actually kind of circumvent it. They don't preach about it. This passage is known as the mini-apocalypse. It is a famous passage. You know it very well. You've heard it many times. But probably you've left wondering, what does it mean? This passage is found, it's actually the chapter 24 of St. Matthew, chapter 13 of St. Mark, and chapter 21 of St. Luke. Okay, 24 in Matthew, 13 in Mark, and 21 in Luke. Let's take first the passage in Matthew. Jesus left the temple area and was going away when his disciples approached him to point out the temple buildings. He said to them in reply, You see all these things, do you not? Amen, I say to you, there will not be left here a stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And if you recall from our conversation on the temple, some of those stones were 20 feet long by 40 feet wide and weighed over a hundred ton. One stone. Alright? So that's a pretty strong statement on the part of our Lord. As you are sitting on the Mount of Olives, so remember the Mount of Olives faces the temple and from the Mount of Olives the southernmost gate is the beautiful gate. It's the gate that leads to the Nicanor gate which is aligned with the holy. And you see it from the Mount of Olives. Okay? So that's not a small detail. The disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? And what sign will there be of your coming and of the end of the age? Pray tell? Excuse me? Remember, there is, there is a certain 
irony in the text, but we miss it because we're too pious. In other words, we don't dare say, huh? What? So, here we are. We are the disciples, and Jesus just said what he said about the temple. So let's put it in a concrete context, something we can relate to. Alright? Jesus is walking by the Golden Gate. And we say, Lord, look, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful bridge? Isn't that pretty? The sun is setting. It's a beautiful view. And our Lord says, Amen, I say to you, there will not be one stone left here that will not be torn down. What do you suppose the question would be for you? What question would you ask him? When this will happen? What other question might come to mind? Why? Right? How? Alright, now keep those questions in mind. Let me read to you the question that the apostles are asking. The disciples. Tell us, when will this happen? So far so good. Right? And what sign will there be of your coming and of the end of the age? Did he say anything about the end of the age? Did Christ say anything about the end of the age? What's up with that end of the age bit? Doesn't it feel like they just pulled a rabbit out of a hat? The end of the age rabbit. Here it is. Why are they asking about the end of the age? Now, if you've been following me so far, you should know. Bingo. The temple-cosmos connection. The temple isn't just a building, is it? Once. Destroyed once. The second temple was not destroyed. It was desecrated, but it wasn't destroyed. Once. Precisely. Precisely. They've seen it once. That's why they're asking about the end of the age. Yes, exactly. What is the temple? What does the temple represent? The old covenant. The cosmos. So you destroy the temple, what are you destroying? The age. What age? No, 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 no. Christianity doesn't even connect to that. No, no. What age? The mosaic age. The temple is connected to which priesthood? Levitical. The Levitical priesthood is connected with what? The Mosaic Covenant. No temple. No sacrifice. No sacrifice. No priesthood. No priesthood. No Mosaic Covenant. You see the connection? Now, let's reread the question again. Tell us, when will this happen? And what sign will there be of your coming and of the end of the age? Make sense? Make sense that we'll ask about the end of the age? And why are they asking about a sign? Why are they asking about a sign? Because of Daniel. Go back and either listen to the part that we, we talked about Daniel or reread Daniel and what Gabriel told Daniel. Daniel gave Gabriel one important sign, which is what? The desolation. Right? The desolation. Daniel spoke of that. That was the sign. So they knew, at least, there is this. That's why they want to know more. What is that sign? Notice, they didn't say, the signs, plural, the sign, singular, the, one. Alright? Now, if you connect this question to the way the prophets spoke, we've seen Isaiah, we've seen Ezekiel, we've seen Daniel, we've seen how they spoke about the day of the Lord. Whenever they spoke about the day of the Lord, if you remember when we looked at Ezekiel at length, it never occurred to the Jews that there would be a physical manifestation of God showing up. Did it? That was never the picture that came to mind. What came to mind was what? The physical, geopolitical reality coming to an end. Why? Because... The Jewish messianism is based on what? What are they expecting? They're expecting the kingdom of David. They're expecting a physical, earthly, political kingdom, right? 
They're not expecting some heavenly kingdom sitting out there far away. They can't even connect to that. That's a foreign concept for them. Just as the physical kingdom is a foreign concept for us. We're sort of on opposite poles. The reality is somewhere in between. So the question of the end of the world doesn't even come to mind. Because Christ never spoke of the end of the world. Have, 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 did he? He only spoke about the temple being destroyed, which is the end of the covenant. How was the temple destroyed before? Did an angel appeared and destroyed and zap it with laser beams? No. The Babylonian forces showed up and destroyed the temple. That is the image they have in mind. That's the pattern. That's what's to be expected. Alright? That's how you read that. Of course, for 21st century Christians living in America, we don't care about that old stuff. We're forward-thinking. We're forward-thinking. We're looking to the future. So that's all we see. We see the anagogical sense, the sense that has to do with the end times and the church. Remember the four senses? The literal is what was meant by the text. The analogical text is that which pertains to Christ. The anagogical text is that which pertains to the church and the end times. And the moral sense is that which pertains to me, right now, personally, in my life. Those are the four senses. Hold on to them. They're very important. But that's what we see. We miss the three other ones, and therefore we just make that text say whatever we want. The Russians are coming, you know, nuclear war. That's what Christ is talking about in the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple. Jesus said to them in reply, notice again how incongruous the answer is. It's really strange. I mean, we would not answer this way. Because they told him, tell us what are the signs. Right? You'd, you'd expect Jesus to respond to the question. Does he? Uh-uh. Why? Why is it that Christ does not respond to the question directly? For one obvious reason. It's the wrong question. They're asking the wrong question. What, they sh what should be first and foremost on their minds is, Lord, how do we prepare? What must we do to be ready for that day? Instead, tell us how it's going to happen because we're going to cash in. Because if the end of the age is coming, what does it imply? The beginning of the new age. And what did he tell them about their role in the new age? You sit down, you judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter, you're the prime minister. Hey, we're going to be in the driver's seat. That's the focus. That's the focus. So Christ kind of pours a little bit of a cold water on their hasty expectation. Brings in some reality check. See that no one deceives you. See that no one deceives you. It means that you have to do some serious work so that you will not be deceived. See that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and reports of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for these things must happen, but it will not yet be the end. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes from place to place. All these are the beginning of the labor pains. Next, depending on how far we go, even either the next lecture or lecture uh, following, I'll show you historically how every one of those statements occurred between 30 and 70 AD. Every one of those statements. Every single one of them. Then they will hand you over to persecution. Okay, question. They will hand you over to... Who, who's the you? Who are them? No, 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 no. They will hand you... The, okay, I'm sorry. The you are the apostles. I'm, wrong question on my part. Who's the they? Who are the they? The Jews. That plays a key role, a really important role. Now, before we take this notion of Jews too far, let's understand it in this context. 
Throughout covenantal history, you had those who constantly opposed the people of God. So, for instance, for Lot and, and Abraham, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you had the Philistines. Then you had the um, Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greek, right? And every time an empire Every time an empire opposes the covenant, that empire that opposes the covenant, that force, that political force that opposes the covenant becomes the tool that God uses to chastise his people and then they go away. You understand? That's the pattern. That's the general pattern. It just so happens that this time around, the Jews fit that pattern. But because they fit that pattern back then, it would be a fundamental mistake to think that they fit the pattern today. No more so than the Babylonians who fit the pattern before them. I mean, nobody today would say, oh, the Babylonians are actually persecuting us. Right? I think you can think of others today who might fit the pattern better. You understand? Once you key in on this, then you can look at the role that the Jews played during the first century in its proper context. Not hiding away from it, nor exaggerating it. Looking at it in its proper context. All right? And there will be supporting text that we will look at. But that's very, very important for Revelation. For Revelation. Because most of the commentators will focus on the... On they would say that Babylon is actually Rome. And that takes them in the wrong direction, as far as I'm concerned. It's not Rome at all. It doesn't fit the covenantal model. We'll see that back then. Keep that in the back of your mind. But that's who they are, because this is what happened. In chiefly Saul, if you recall. Right? You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then many will be led into sin. They will betray and hate one another. They will betray and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many, and because of the increase of evil doing, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. So that Christ is describing to us, you, 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 you see how he focuses immediately on that which is most important. The moral conduct of the Christian faced with the world. This is true back then as it is today. No different. The moral conduct of... What should a, a Christian expect realistically from the world? Describe right here. So therefore we should not be scandalized or surprised or concerned or overly concerned as if the world is behaving this way towards us. That is to be expected. We should be gravely concerned if ever suddenly the Catholic Church becomes popular with the world. Now we're, we're in big trouble. So, anyone trying or vying for increasing the popularity of the Church with the world is, is going down the wrong path. That's not going to happen. It will never happen. That's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. And this, gospel of this, and, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now some of you might say, well, that didn't happen. Well, actually it did, pretty much. By 70 AD, the gospel was in China, India. By 70 AD, the gospel was in China and in India. The, the apostles traveled and traveled extensively, and they preached it to, throughout the known world. By, by the detailed account of historians like uh, um, Eusebius, the, the, the church historian, will report to you where the, what the apostles went, and simply by the churches that were founded and built across the whole world. When you see the, desolation, the desolating abomination spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, which holy place? Is that clear now? Where is he? He's on Mount Olivet. What is he looking at? The holy place. He didn't say the holy of holies, did he? The holy place. It's visible from where he's sitting. So probably he pointed at it. Okay? When you see it standing there, that's your sign. 
Everything else I gave you is preparation, that it's coming. When you see this standing there, that's the sign. Get out. Okay? And Matthew writes, let the reader understand. So, obviously, he's talking to Christians of Jewish background. Because had he written, let the reader understand, to Christians of uh, Armenian or Romanian background, that makes no sense to them. They may not even have an idea of what the holy place is. And we'll see how Luke actually approaches this. He approaches it differently. Then those in what? San Diego? In San Francisco? In Ukraine? In Egypt? No. In Judea. Very specific. Not even all of Israel. Just Judea. So you see how contained and constrained this whole notion of the end of the ages because it is around the temple. Let those who are in Judea, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A person on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house. A person in the field must not return to get his cloak. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that you, your flight not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For at that time there will be great tribulations such as, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, they will be shortened. So when you Christians see the, desola the, 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 the desolating abomination in the holy place, you must leave. Now think about that for a second. Who are those Christians living in Judea? What is their background? And probably they have homes where? In Jerusalem. Their home is in Jerusalem. They have family members in Jerusalem, not all of whom would have converted. You think it's easy? This is, this is they've, everything they've learned centers around that temple. Everything. Their entire life is centered on the temple. I want you to feel the, 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 the power of those words because they are very, they're heart-wrenching to Jews. Us here, we're sitting here, yeah, sure, you know. Pass me the, pass me the salt, please. Keep on, keep on reading. Right? But to anyone who was forced to leave a place of birth, you might be able to associate with that. He's basically telling them, when you see that, get out. What do you mean, get out? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop, 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 stop. Okay. Pause the movie, please. We thought that what is going to happen is that we are the good guys and the other ones are the bad guys. And we win. They're supposed to run away. Not us. We're supposed to win. What's with this business of being persecuted and, 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 and having to run away and meaning abandoning the temple and abandoning the house of God? Is that what you're telling us to do? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm telling you to do. But why? Because this has to pass away. Don't think that this was an academic exercise for them. It was not. And we will see how the early Christian community had to deal with this issue, especially, especially St. Paul. And I'll show you how many of the heresies that developed right around that time go back to that one issue, the temple, and rooted in the temple. This is not a small deal. If anyone says to you then, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, False messiahs and false prophets will arise and they will perform signs and wonders so great as to deceive, if that were possible, even the elect. Why is he telling them that now? Precisely to ward them against the notion of his physical manifestation. Precisely so that they would not expect him to reappear in the flesh. He's telling them if a guy shows up and says, I am he, don't believe him. And he doesn't add, and then I will show up, does he? doesn't say that. Because he has no intention 
of coming back down. This is not the end of the world. This is not the final judgment. This is the end of an age, of the old age. That's what this is. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I hope that by now you're comfortable with this imagery. You know what you're related to. Right? Okay. Sun, moon, and stars. Time. That's the clock. This is how the ancients measure time. So if you wanted to say that a kingdom came to an end, what do you say? Time's up. The clock is smashed. We don't count anymore based on the old time. And how do you express that? Using this imagery. That's what this means. This is not a scientific description of some cosmological events that are going to take place. All right? This is a Jewish imagery about saying the end of this era has come about. This kingdom passed away. It's a way, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's a manner of speech. It just as today, if you were to say to someone, you've heard me say this a number of times, give me a break, and he goes out and then brings you a break. The, the thing that you put on your car to stop your wheels. Didn't you say give me a break? Right? Or if you say, let's hit the road. And he goes and gets himself a sledgehammer and starts hitting the road. Isn't that what you said? Just as we have metaphors and images that we use in our language constantly, let's not presuppose that the ancients didn't. They did the same thing as we do today. Here's an interesting question that you ask people and, you, and, and they kind of freeze. Did the ancient tell joke? They did, right? They told jokes. So they had metaphors. They had ways, manners of speech to say certain things. Problems that we disconnected from it, and we take it literally. So this is like somebody told you, let's hit the road, and you said, all right, let's take the sledgehammer. Where is it? And you can see how you can come up with very fanciful interpretation once you do that. No, this is just a, yeah, verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there, there the vultures will gather, or the eagles will gather, people will, might might think that eagles and a, and a Roman, and maybe that, that's what it's referring to, could be in a very distant sense. But, but this is simply a, a, a proverb to say, uh, it's, it's a proverb used to indicate that uh, if you want to find the dead body, see where the vultures are. All right? They'll point you to it. Why do we say that? Because look at the verse before it. For just as lightning comes from the east and is seen as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, as you see the lightning, you know something is happening, and he uses two celestial imagery. One, lightning, and other vultures, to indicate his coming. How? By the sign, which is the abomination of desolation. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And actually, I prefer all the tribes of the land because all the tribes of the earth is kind of a strange concept. Will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, I, will, I, will, as I will retell some of the Jewish wars and I will show you how Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that was captured by the Romans, as well as... I believe Tacitus, who was a pagan uh, Roman historian, point out that during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, a sign, a, a sign like that of a cross, appeared over Jerusalem for an extended period of time. And they all saw it. One of the problems we have with the text is because we ignore the historical events that surrounded that period. We, well, where's that sign? Well, yeah, actually, it was seen by many, both Jews and Romans. In fact, Josephus will tell you that they saw chariots of fire over Jerusalem for an extended period of time, both Romans and Jews. The, the, the Roman historian and the Jewish historian both reports on these heavenly sightings during the war. Yes, but that's a very good point. Bear with me. Yes, but bear with Yes, but even the apocalypse is exactly following the same line of thought. So bear with me. I'll, I'll answer your question, which is, does this apply only to the past? Has it all been fulfilled? Is there any future fulfillment? 
That's the fundamental of the question. And the answer to your question lies, as I said earlier, hold on to the four senses. If you don't, then you will see, you will say as many, not as many as some Protestants say today, this is all past fulfillment, the apocalypse has been all fulfilled in the past, there's no more future fulfillment. And their mistake comes from the fact that they don't see the four senses. Four. This is a pattern that happened back then, and it indicates how God deals with us throughout history, and it speaks about the end of time, all of them, as well as our moral life. All four senses are contained here. I'm only focused on the primary, the literal sense, because this is where basically most of us lose our bearings. Okay? Now, you will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here we go. We literalistically see that. What would we say? We see spacecraft. Or, you know, Jesus on a white horse with a cowboy hat, a cavalry, right? Charging in the clouds. I mean, if you try to use this image literalistically, it's funny. Imagine Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. What kind of cloud is that? Is it a cumulonimbus? You know, the, the rain-bearing clouds? Or is it stratus, the flat ones? Is he sitting on the cloud? Kind of, you know, sitting? The way Peter Pan sits on the cloud? Or is he standing? And if he's standing, what is the cloud doing? Zipping by? As soon as you subject this imagery to reality, it should tell you right away, I'm going down the wrong path. That makes no sense. It absolutely does not represent reality. Okay. Why? Because you took cloud and you associated it with what? What context? Weather. Precisely. The weather channel. Where the weather is whirling around and Jesus is one of them. Hello? Makes no sense. What should be your knee-jerk reaction? To associate it with which context? How? Why? Well, why did you associate that with the Holy Spirit? You're right, but why? Precisely the Old Testament imagery, the prophets. You go back and you say, what? Where did I see cloud before? What did we see cloud before? Elijah, but before Elijah. A very important cloud. Alright? What is then the representation of that cloud? What is it? The Holy Spirit. That means Christ is coming in the Holy Spirit with power and glory. Now, do you still see Christ with a cowboy hat and a lasso? Goes away, right? See how we continuously are tugged, even mentally, by the world, how the world uses this, these images to even penetrate through our conscience and color scripture to the point where we don't see scripture anymore, but we see a deformed scriptural understanding and therefore our understanding of Christ and the truth and the church are completely deformed. Why? Because we're not guarding our conscience. We are not fighting the battle. You've got to imagine that where, where your brain is, there's a door, and for most of us, the door is open. And all these images that the world puts before us are just getting in and are soaking our brain and our conscience. And then here we are, soaked with the images of the world, reading scripture. Sure, we're going to make sense of it. Good luck. That's why most often scripture reads you, not you reading scripture. All right? When you read scripture and you say, I don't understand what scripture is saying back to you, is because you're foreign to me. Alright? You're foreign to me. You don't speak my language. You're speaking a different language. That's what you don't understand. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Why are the angels gathering the elect? Why are the angels gathering the elect? Notice, this is not like the language of the end of times, the final judgment. In the final judgment, what are the angels doing? Are they gathering the elect? No, they're separating. There's a separation, right? Is there a separation here? No, there's a notion of gather. Why? Yeah, let me ask this question. Which guardian angels are doing this? See, this is when we, 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 we don't roll up our sleeves and really work through the text. 
Which of the Gargonesians? Are there seraphims? Are there cherubims? Are there choirs? Are there, are there, I mean, not choirs, are there thrones? Are there dominions? Are there principalities? Which angels does the Lord pick randomly? You and you and over, no, not you, but you. Yeah, you did it last time. All right, you can rest. How about you? Is that what's going on? Okay, which angels? The Garden angels are playing a fundamental role in this. All right? Gathering, the image of gathering is that of the shepherd gathering his flock to protect the flock. All right? That's what Christ is saying. And the garden angels play a fundamental role there, provided we're listening. The four winds are the end of the earth, again, seen as an altar. Right? Always seen as an altar. There's a lot of uh, liturgical imagery here, um, but we, we, let, we might be able to touch upon that last time. For instance, the fact that you have a trumpet. Again, that's a covenant being, uh, being played here. The, the trumpet is used before the war. All right. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches become tender and sprouts, leave, and, and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. So, in other words, study the sign. And notice, he uses constantly physical, physical objects. Our Lord is not up there in the stratosphere talking about mystical ideas. He talks about a fig tree. He talks about lightning. He talks about vultures, corpses, physical reality. All this is embedded in physical reality. And he's saying, just as you know, by observing physical reality, what's going to happen, you need to learn to observe physical reality to see me coming. That is wisdom. That is wisdom. In the same way you will see all these things, in the same way when you see all these things, know that he is near at the gates. Huh. Okay. He is near. Who is he? Who is he? No. The Lord. Right? The Son of Man. He is near at the gates. What? Here we go again. Another rabbit. What gates? More generally, gates of the city. Back then, cities had gates. Near at the gates means what? Siege. That's what it means. Know that the siege is coming. That's why you need to get out. Get out before the siege happens. Because when it happens, you're stuck. Amen. I say to you, this, gen this, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This, what, which, which this generation? What is a generation? In Hebrew, generation is a gunea, 40 years. That's a generation, 40 years. This, is this our generation? No. It's theirs generation. If that generation will not pass away until all this is happening. Exactly what he said. 3380 to 7080, one generation. 7080, Jerusalem is destroyed. One generation. Right? In fact, there are theologians who, when they study this text and that of Luke, you know what they say? Those texts must have been written after Jerusalem was destroyed. Because they're way too precise for Jesus to have made those prophecies. They're so precise, and they happen in a literal fashion that it's. It, they were written after, afterwards, after the destruction of the temple, not before. The Lord of heaven and earth could not have told it as it was. Go figure. I, I really like it when people basically tell me what, what God can and cannot do. I, I, I found that very interesting. But of that day and hour, now here's another confusion. But of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Here we go again. We had this pretty nice tidy logic going on here and then the Lord destroys it in one verse. Well, he, we thought he just knew and then he tells us he doesn't know. What's up with that? All the above that he mentioned. All the signs, all the way through the gates. It's one continuous set of events. They're all connected. No, no, no. Again, that's not the, that's not the perspective. This is our human perspective. What is going on there that did not happen in World War I and World War II? It's actually a very good point. What exactly? No matter how terrible World War I and World War II are, no matter how terrible our wars are, none of them end a covenantal age. That is huge. God measures things differently. 
And the impact is not just in terms of human loss. The impact is in not what was taken away, but what was coming in. Both of these need to be kept in mind. The old covenant made way to the new. That never happened in any of the other wars. So don't just measure the way we measure things. That's not the perspective. It's a very good point, and I thank you for bringing it up. It isn't about just how many people died. Because if this was the case, obviously, surely throughout history, there are other events that were much more horrendous than this. Forget World War I, World War II. The Chinese wars, 120 years of wars, killed more people than in World War II. Upward of 100 million people died in China. But that's not, it's obvious this is not the point of reference here. Again, don't pull the text and bring it into a different context, because then you make it say other stuff, which it was never intended to say. The temple was destroyed the second, twice, not three times, twice only. The, 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 the first time did not indicate the end of the covenant because of the promise of restoration. This time around, there is no promise of restoration. It's the end. That's it. It ushers in the last age. No other event in history ushers in a last age. Remember, the tribulation, again, is not simply viewed in human terms. That's a reduction. It is also viewed in spiritual terms and our battle with Satan. So keep all that in mind when you evaluate those events. All right? Because that's not... The perspective of the Lord is not, an, is not based on number of dead. Okay? So our, we measure things based on how many people we're able to kill. But that's just one measurement. It's not the most relevant here. It may be dramatic, but it's not the most relevant. Now, it is including the four senses. What happened in Jerusalem was horrendous. What happened in Jerusalem from a demonic perspective was horrendous, right? which we cannot really understand. So it wasn't just the physical reality, it's also a spiritual one. Well, yeah, you could say it this way, but let me give you another statistics. Over the period of 6,000 years, there has been over 14,000 wars and 292 years of peace. Okay? If you take World War I and World War II in that context, you see it's kind of business as usual. All right? In terms of our conduct, in terms of how we behave. The scale was much bigger, more dramatic, but it's nothing new to the human race. We invented a new weapon, but the invention of the fire weapon was just as dramatic for the Chinese because they were able to kill a lot more people. Right? But the point here is that it's the end of a covenantal age, which did not happen since and will not happen again. Yes, I'm saying, suddenly he says, well, I don't know. Right? Why does he say that? This, by the way, is used by the Jehovah's Witness to show that Christ is not, cannot be God. Because he just said, well, I don't know. God, maybe. God the Father knows, but I don't know. Okay. Why is he telling them that? The reason why Christ says what he's saying is for two reasons. In his humanity, Christ doesn't know. Remember, Christ did not save us simply by being God. He saved us by dying on the cross as a man. And on the cross, it's his humanity that suffered. It is his humanity that died, not his divinity. Christ came here and he prayed. He prayed to his... Why would he pray? God praying to God. Isn't that funny? Isn't he God? He is God. Why is God praying to God? Why does he say, Abba Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass away, but your will, not my will. But isn't he God? Isn't he just as much God as God, as God the Father is God? Okay, well, does it make sense to you? It's like me praying to myself. Hey, would you mind giving me this pen? Well, I don't know, I'm going to think about it. Right? If you don't give me this pen, I'm going to sue you. It's, just, it's nonsensical, is it? Or is it not? It is not if Christ emptied himself, to use the, the expression of the fathers, and condescended to save us as a man. Christ prayed as a man. Christ worked as a man. 
Christ was thirsty as a man. Christ was hungry as a man. None of those things apply to God. God can't be thirsty and hungry and tired and not know all that stuff. But because he willingly chose to use his humanity as a vehicle of salvation to show us his humility and to be a model for us that he says what he says. And so you look at this and say, wow, how humble Christ was that he willingly chose to be and act as a man would. Why would one do something like that? Why would anyone do something like this? Why would a rich prince accept to live as a peasant with a woman? What would that be the reason that he would do such a thing? All right. That's how much he loves us. That's what is going on here. His focus on the apostles, the apostles are focused on what? Positions. Riches. I'm the prime minister. Who's the greatest? He's focused on them to teach them how to behave in those situations. It is not about knowledge. It is not about knowing the future, to control it. He didn't do that. He didn't need to do that. We don't need to do that either. It's not about knowing what's going to happen. It's about trust and belief in God. That's the example he sets before us. It is for our sake that he does that. Not because he cannot know, but because he loves us so much that he wants, us, he wants to show us how to behave. So when we see him do it, we imitate him. And as we live in this world with atomic bombs and terrorism and all the rest, we don't need to know what is going to happen tomorrow and the day after for us to, f to feel safe and secure. We imitate Christ. So what is then, what, what is then the following? Oh yeah, and then he says, For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. All right? So don't expect the world to wake up and, and fix itself. Not going to happen. What happened back then will happen today. Two men will be out in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be riding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. The fact that some Protestant ignore the reference to Noah give you the, 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 you know, the famous movie where a woman is in the bed and, the, and her husband is shaving and then suddenly she goes into the bathroom and there's just a shaver. He's been taken. Right? And the notion is that you're going to be left behind. Have you, have you heard of this? Alright. So in that representation of reality, who is the lucky one? The one taken or the one left behind? The one taken in that representation of reality, right? Okay. In the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, what happened? There were those who were taken and there were those who were left behind. If you were back then, which of those two groups you would want to belong to? Bingo. As, as I said, you take scripture out of its real context, you put it in some other context, you get it to say whatever you want. It is those who are left. It makes sense, doesn't it? He's talking about a siege. He's talking about a war. Those who will be taken are dead. So what is the foregone conclusion? Therefore, stay awake. Meaning in a state of constant watchfulness. You stay awake through prayer. That's how you stay awake. That's the way to stay awake. That's the way to reflect and pray. For you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this. If the master of the house had, taken, had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too you also must be prepared for, an, for at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. And then finally he switches over to a specific one among them. Who then is the faithful and prudent servant whom the master has put in charge of his household to distribute to them their food at the proper time? Who do you think he has in mind when he says these words? Peter. That's for him. 
So he's going to go away. Peter is in charge. It's up to Peter to relay that message to all to make sure that the flock is taken care of, that they get it and they get out on time. That's what he's asking him to do now. That's the role of Peter. Amen, I say to you, he would put him in charge of all his property. And he did. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is long delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the servant's master will come on an unexpected day at an unknown hour and will punish him severely and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Note this how it ends on the moral note. The whole focus almost of the entire passage from the time he told them, be not deceived, see that no one deceives you, all the way through is on their moral conduct, on the way they ought to behave. He didn't say anything about the end times. He spoke of the abomination of desolation, which is what's spoken of from Daniel. He repeated it. He told them it's going to happen. Watch for it. Know that there are other signs coming before. But he said very little, didn't he? Very little. The focus here is really on the moral conduct of leaders of the church faced with the world and faced with judgment. Now, quickly, I just want to read you the same passage in Luke and show you how Luke, now talking to non-Jews, speak of this. Luke chapter 21. And in there, verse, let me read um, verse 16. You will even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put, put some of you to death. So notice now the reference to immediately their own kin, the Jews. Right? You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. When, and then verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is at hand. And those in Judea must flee to the mountains, that those within the city escape from it, and let those in the countryside not enter the city. For these days are the time of punishment when all the scriptures are fulfilled. Verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken as captives to all the Gentiles, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is why we say the temple will not be rebuilt. Notice how Luke is very explicit. He doesn't talk about the abomination of desolation. He doesn't talk about... Terms, he's very specific. He's, he's addressing a population who's not necessarily aware of the Jewish background. And then notice that uh, verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth nations will be in dismay, perplexed by the roaring of the sea and waves. Same kind of imagery to say the end of a world is coming. And he repeats, Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's an oath. That's an oath taking. That's, it's like Christ saying, I swear to God, this is going to happen. I hope now that you can go back to this text and reread it and see how in its context it is addressed specifically to the apostles and to the Christians of the time to help them navigate through the tribulation that will signal the end of the Old Covenant. And we're going to see how this actually unfolds in the following lectures. Why is that all important? Because the book of Revelation was written right in that context. So, essentially, we're now starting to pull all those things, which that all the strands that we've started to weave throughout this whole study are now starting to be pulled together to help us understand those texts. And they rest on this whole edifice, from the covenant, to the senses of scripture, to the prophets, to the salvation history, to um, the temple, the liturgy. All that comes together to help us understand the text. That's what we need to do. As far as living our life today, you can take now that same text and apply it to our lives today, to the end of an age today. And you should understand that our focus is not trying to figure out what is going to happen next, tomorrow. But are we watching? Are we awake? Are we in a state of watchfulness? And that is why Yerima insists over and over again on the idea of prayer, 
confession, sacraments, and scripture. Without those, we can't watch. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.